problem is that it's seen as a minority issue, but in reality, it affects everyone. Hello, and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Arik Chowdhury, founder and chief executive of Webroots Democracy and newly appointed head of think tank for artificial intelligence and emerging tech at Future Advocacy. Welcome, Arik. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries, that was quite an introduction. Um, congratulations on your new role. How does it feel? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm quite excited about it. It's a really interesting role and a really interesting organisation working on an interesting topic on an issue that is going to affect society today and also for many years to come. So I'm quite excited about it. So Arik, you were born and brought up in Manchester. Can you tell us a bit about your early life and what got you interested in technology? Yeah, so I guess I got interested in technology quite late, I suppose. I lived in Manchester and then I went to university in Birmingham where I studied economics and political science and what spurred me to do that was really an interest in politics which came from I guess the 2008 financial crash which got me interested in politics and economics and how how the world works I suppose and during my degree in my final year I looked at the role of the internet in political participation and that's really where it started in terms of my interest in technology and, and in particular how we can use technology to get more people involved in democracy and to bring about and change democracy. But then afterwards, I moved to London and I worked in the civil service. I worked in the Department for Culture, Media and Sports. I worked in the Foreign Office. And I also worked in the Greater London Authority. All of these were, were different kind of jobs. So DCMS was project management on, a, on the Superfast broadband rollout. So tech project and then I worked in KPMG and financial services which was doing audit of public sector organizations but at the same time in my third time I started this side project which was Webroots Democracy which later became my my full-time job and this grew into a think tank uh, looking at digital democracy so looking at different ways that technology is impacting society impacting our democracy and in particular it pushes for trials of remote online voting in elections so over the past sort of five years, I've been looking into these kind of areas around digital democracy, and it all kind of started with that study and final year at university. And you mentioned researching the relationship between the internet and political participation. How have you seen this change since the years that you, you began that study, especially in the context of things like the US elections? So yeah, definitely. I think when I started looking at it, it was quite an optimistic outlook that everyone had. They kind of saw the Arab Spring being a great thing about social media, that finally people are able to organise and you know rise up against brutal regimes thanks to social media. They're no longer restricted in what they say or what they read or how they're informed. And, you know, again, it's another way for the electorate to engage with their members of parliament. You know, you have the rise of things like e-petitions. Everything suddenly becomes cheaper and easier to do with regards to getting involved in democracy. However, obviously, in recent years, you've now seen a more pessimistic outlook on, on technology. You're seeing it sort of contribute to a 
atmosphere of uh, you know, abusive discourse online. You're seeing you know, interference by you know, malicious governments or, or attempted, attempted interference by malicious governments with elections, whether that's physically hacking into campaigns or whether it's through the use of social media bots or dark advertising. So I think it's kind of turned from being an optimistic tool to being quite a pessimistic one. Now, yeah, people are quite scared of it. They, they want to clamp down on it more than they want to open it up. Definitely. And we've seen that with some of the recent proposals around regulation of the internet. And something we were wondering was, you mentioned a number of government departments there, and you also worked in Parliament for an MP. Both Kamal and I have worked in that Westminster bubble ourselves. How did it feel to leave that and do your own thing? Uh, a little bit daunting, I suppose. I mean, there's always the sort of comfort of being in, especially in the civil service, you know, these sort of big organisations. And then doing something on the outside, I guess, feels a bit daunting, but it's also, you know, exciting as well. And you get to really delve into things that you really, really care about a lot more. So, yeah, as I said, yeah, this is something I was looking at in my sort of spare time anyway. And to look at it all day, every day and become immersed in it is quite a, quite a good thing. And I guess these previous experiences of working in the civil service and parliament gives you a good insight into you know, how policy is actually made and implemented and how to influence it. And that's kind of what I'm interested in doing is, is influencing policy and getting good reforms in place. And you can't really do that just by working for an MP or, or working in the cogs of uh, civil service. Yeah, definitely. All props to you for bursting the bubble and leaving and setting up your own thing. I think one of the, yeah, it's basically one thing about the civil service is you can't be shown to be influencing in one way or another, you serve your politicians. So I suppose that must have been one of the reasons to step outside. No, I still tried when I was in civil service. I know. I remember one thing I used to suggest was to nationalise the broad, broadband infrastructure in the UK. Never really uh, got taken up as an idea. But um, no, you're, you're a lot more free, I think outside uh, to suggest things and to come up with new ideas and I guess it's a very different kind of way of being involved in the political system. Absolutely and keep plugging for that one that sounds awesome what a great idea. So yeah we mentioned how you're founder and chief exec of the the think tank Web Roots Democracy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the mission of that organization and what you're proud of doing as part of that? So I guess the mission of it is to you know, look at ways we can use technology to better, and that can be physically using it, what new tools can we be using to engage citizens you know, in the process, or it could be looking at ways we can safeguard existing tools. So one area of focus we've looked at recently in the past year or so is around social media regulation. So in particular, looking at this issue of abusive discourse online, you know, is that going to happen just indefinitely? Is there anything we can really do about it to tackle it? Is it a tech problem? Is it a societal problem? You know, what are the answers to these kinds of questions? And then on the back of that, really pushing for these kind of reforms to get into manifestos and to get on the agenda of politicians who, especially recently with Brexit, just don't really have that focus on some of these issues that are actually going to affect democracy over the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that recently issues of abuse online have come up more and more since Brexit as well, because a lot of MPs have been feeling a lot of abuse since then. Yeah, I mean, Brexit has definitely contributed towards it. Or maybe it's the the reaction to Brexit that I think has, has contributed towards it. So if you look at, for example, some of the traditional media outlets, how they've portrayed things as a betrayal or treason, those those sorts of language. 
and really pitted parliamentarians against the public. I think that narrative has really further wedged the divide that I think was already sort of caused by the Brexit referendum. You're seeing this spread online where everyone is talking about politics. Yeah, there's lots of things actually mixed in there. It's not necessarily even just individuals. So a lot of cases, for example, where some of these um, tweets have been done by people who don't live in the UK or aren't even real people, they're just automated bots. Yeah, there's so many different things that are contributing towards this atmosphere on the internet where our research has shown that people would rather just not talk about things publicly and they're, they're instead self-censoring and discussing politics in private forums. And therefore, you're just left with sort of extremes on the internet where you're you're having this sort of polarised debate where everyone's either very pro-Remain or they're, they're very pro-Brexit and you're, you're seeing very little nuance, I think, online. And the, the worry is that politicians and the media think that that is the, the general opinion of the public. Um, so I think there are a lot, of, a lot of issues contributing towards it. One of the other issues that we've seen that you've written about a lot is the issue of voter apathy, particularly affecting young people. How do you think that we should strive to get young people more engaged? This was actually the the main reason actually I, I began Webroots is to, to look at this gap between the voter turnout of young people versus the voter turnout of older voters. So back in the 70s or 80s, I can't remember when, when it was, the voter turnout amongst these two groups was relatively similar. And since about 1997, you've seen this big gap uh, open up <clears throat> between you know, everyone aged under 25 and those aged over 60 or 70 where you're seeing sort of 70, 80% turnout amongst the elder voters and turnouts of less than 50% amongst young people. And then, you know, this has been the case since 1997. And even in the last general election in 2017, there's a lot written about a youth quake where it was said that a lot of young people turned out to vote. But actually, a lot of that was actually based upon fake news at the time, which is something even I fell for. There was a tweet put out and shared a lot, which said that voter turnout amongst young people was 75% or something, when in reality, it was, it was still around 50%. You know, the studies have shown since that election, still the lowest voting group of all age groups. So this is a this is a big issue, and there are many reasons for this. You know, one of them is that you know, you're seeing more young people go to go to university now than in previous uh, generations, and you know, they're living away. A lot of people don't know they're registered to vote in in their university compared to their home constituency. A lot often you're seeing political parties knowing that older voters are the ones who turn out to vote, and therefore put less effort into appealing to younger voters. But one of the issues that I've looked at a lot personally is around the actual methods of democracy so this comes back to the potential of remote online voting in elections you know voting on your smartphone voting on your laptop in elections rather than simply just having the existing options of voting at polling stations and voting by post and the reason for this is if you think about the next scheduled general election in 2022 this will be the first general election where the 18 and 19 year olds voting for the first time new voters who were born in the 21st century they won't remember a world before smartphones and social media i would wager that many of them perhaps have never even posted a letter in their lives and this problem will get worse as as time goes on and, and more things move online and you're you're then seeing a democratic system that's divorced from the way that people live their lives and so this is one big thing that i've been researching over the past few years is can we actually have online voting elections you know what should that look like you know, how can we secure it and you know what impacts could it have so I do think, you know, whilst there are many issues around why younger people don't vote, I do think one of the big problems is actually that our democracy, our democratic system is becoming quite outdated. Yeah, absolutely. Two things. Firstly, I 100% fell for that stat about about there being a youth quake 
Um, so thank you very much for correcting that. I just found out about that just then. And secondly, on the topic of emerging technology, we also saw that you were interested about artificial intelligence. And we were just wondering about how you think that would affect the future of democracy as well. Like, like I said, my new role will be focused on artificial intelligence. How will it affect democracy? I guess most of the I guess my media thought it's probably in a negative way. So one big fear that a lot of people in this space have about emerging tech is the rise of deep fakes. So deep fakes are videos where it's basically Photoshop, but for videos where you can have a video of, let's say, a politician, you know, let's say Theresa May speaking about an issue. And it looks realistic. And you, it sounds like her. It looks like her. You know, the words are perfectly in sync with how she's speaking, but it's totally fabricated. As, as this technology is perfected, which it will be over the next 10 years, if not, if not, if that, uh, this, again, will contribute to this distrust in what we see and read online. You know, soon we'll be seeing scandals, which maybe started out with a deep fake video. And then by the time it's spread, everyone believes it quicker than the statement denying it can be put out. And that therefore is huge, right? Because now we're already in a stage where we're struggling to believe what we read on the internet. Next, we'll be struggling to believe what we see on the internet in terms of you know, actual videos. So I think in the next 10 years, there will be some big concerns around the use of deep fakes. And that's something that you know, governments and societies all around the world should be thinking about. You know, how do we actually detect these? How do we you know, guard against these? You know, um, how, how do you regulate this kind of technology? That's one big issue, I think, that will happen as a result of this kind of emerging tech. You know, other ways you're seeing, um, how could you see? You could, a lot of people talk about doing democracy in different ways with technology. So one idea that's often talked about is coming up with new democratic systems. So you could have, so our system now obviously is representative democracy. Every five years we vote, we vote in uh, parliamentarians to decide our laws. Another idea is one called liquid democracy. Liquid democracy is a combination of direct democracy, so voting on every policy that goes through parliament and representative democracy. And how it works basically is you, as an individual voter, maybe have maybe allocated 100 votes or so, and you can hand those votes to representatives to vote on certain issues. So rather than an individual, you maybe hand over your votes on environmental policy to Greenpeace or Extinction Rebellion, and you can take them away and give it to someone else if they're not voting in, in, according to how you want them to vote. And you can suddenly do this with technology because now voting becomes cheap. You know, you don't have to wait every five years and make it some big administrative burden. Suddenly, maybe you can now vote on everything, on, on every kind of policy, and maybe it will change actually the way we do democracy. Personally, I'm not a big, big fan of that idea, but that's different ways I think it could affect democracy. But the problem with positively affecting democracy is that you know, Parliament is a very bureaucratic and traditional institution. You know, only very recently did they get card readers in Parliament, for example. You know, and you know, very, very recently they allowed proxy voting for women on maternity leave. So the, the pace of change in Parliament is a lot slower than the pace of change with in technology. So I'm not convinced we're going to see many huge positive changes in democracy anytime soon. But we could see a lot of threats. Absolutely, yeah. And what you were suggesting there um, and giving some of the ideas around different ways that we might do voting and democracy um, in, a, in a more engaging and rapid way. Voter turnout is issue an issue that perpetually comes up in lots of different elections. And we saw that you'd written about that during the Scotland independence referendum. 
To what extent do you think our current system deters people? And we're thinking particularly in terms of accessibility. So, so there's lots of different ways we could change things that you know don't necessarily don't involve technology. So one reform I would advocate is lowering the voting age to 16, and actually, which is what they did in Scotland, and actually reaching out to young people, you know, whilst they're still in full-time education, and you know, giving them, you know, you can even put the polling station at, at school, for example, and really engage with young people that way and, and boost turnout that way. Because, you know, once you vote once, you you vote again and again throughout your lifetime. Um, but in terms of accessibility, you know, this is the big benefit, I think, actually, of online voting and elections, uh, those kind of reforms. Because for everyone else, these technologies are about convenience, making it slightly easier to vote, making it so that you don't have to queue up at a polling station or you don't have to post a letter two weeks in advance. Um, but for, for many voters with disabilities, so you know people who perhaps have a bedbound disability or are vision impaired, this isn't about convenience, it's about you know, enabling them to actually participate in democracy independently and in secret. And those two words, independently and in secret, are actual human rights around democracy. So every voter has this right to, to cast an independent secret ballot. The reason that's important is the provisions for disabled voters, for example, now, so if you have a bedbound disability, you have to rely on a uh, postal vote. So either you give your postal vote to someone else that you trust to you know, send it in for you, or you rely on a proxy vote where you um, assign a trusted individual to vote on your behalf at the polling station. So both of those options, A, aren't available to all voters, all voters in these situations, and B, were never really intended to be the default method of voting. They were kind of emergency provisions for voting, whereas for a lot of people it becomes a default. And if, for example, to take another type of voter, if you're a voter who is vision impaired or, or completely blind, the provision for voting now is... At the polling station, you have something called a tactile voting template. So this is a, a sheet of paper which has Braille translations of the candidates and the political parties, which you place over your ballot paper and you use that to cast a vote. The issue with that uh, provision is that um, there's only, of, of all uh, vision-impaired adults in the UK, only 1% can read Braille now. It's become very outdated as a... As a, as a method of communication for voters with vision impairments for various reasons. One is that obviously technology has advanced since then. So you have things like Siri, you have screen readers, you have all of these different types of technology which you can use to read and communicate. Also, you know, some people go blind later on in life, so they don't necessarily learn Braille. Some people become vision impaired as children but are encouraged to read English rather than Braille. So it's not a, it's not a perfect system for these voters. And therefore, we have a huge chunk of the population which is denied their right to an independent secret ballot. And the problem is that it's seen as a minority issue. It's seen as, OK, it's an issue that only affects maybe a couple of million people or a few hundred thousand, whatever the figure is. But in reality, it affects everyone because everyone can become, can, can get a disability over their lifetime. Everyone or anyone can become blind at some point in their life or, you know, gain it or, or get a disability and not be able to leave the house or take the privileges privileges that they may have as able-bodied people so it really is an issue that sh that should affect everyone and it's something that we've factored into the current system in, in every in every other way so 
if you think, about, for example, why it is that there are lots of polling stations, why these polling stations are always on the ground floor, you know, all of these reasons are, are around convenience and accessibility, but we've failed to really extend that some of the most vulnerable groups of voters who probably need the most representation as well. And I think technology could have a huge role to play in actually you know, removing those barriers. Definitely. It's really interesting what you say there about those examples of the ways that things are designed for, for the edge cases, but then end up being really helpful for everyone. And that's that's a theme we've spoken about before. So something else you've been particularly vocal about is is racism in the political system and particularly around the impact of Brexit and some of the, the recent changes in society. Is this something that's affected you personally and what could, do you think we can do to hold Parliament to account? Racism, for m- most people have heard racism affected them personally since they were like four years old um, and you know children notice that they're, they're a different colour to them. Your race automatically becomes part of your identity so I guess it is something that I've been interested in for a while. Um, at university, I did a bit of anti-racism campaigning. And then I guess in my experience of working in civil service and in parliament, I've I've seen that more can be done on these issues. The Brexit referendum campaign I saw as being a big, sort of huge spike in, in sort of racist rhetoric and campaigning. And I think that's kind of been actually glossed over a little bit since the referendum. So... Whilst I don't like to try and like talk about it too much, I do think there's a responsibility of every person of colour who, who has any kind of platform to really talk about these issues and trying to campaign on it in some way. So I guess this is something that I, I see as, I guess, a responsibility to talk about when appropriate. So Brexit is one one issue I, I wrote about in terms of the sort of racist rhetoric. Another I've written about is um, the need for equal opportunities audits in Parliament. So what I noticed when I worked in Parliament is that when you um, start employment, you never have to fill out any equal opportunities form, any sort of collection form, which was different to places I worked in before in the civil service and in um, Canary Wharf. The reason for that is you know, there is actual public sector bodies are mandated over a certain size to collect this kind of data on gender, race, um, you know, all of these different kinds of characteristics of their employees. Um, but Parliament, and even in Parliament, actually, there are teams who also have to collect this. So the digital services team, for example, in Parliament will collect this data. But there's no data collected for each individual MP's office. And the reason for that is that they're, they're seen as being their own sort of individual small business rather than one collective organisation. So that's, that's something I've, I've also campaigned on because... On the one hand, you have politicians standing up in Parliament saying, you know, the police needs to be be more representative. You know, companies need to close their gender pay gap. Uh, you know, talking about race race equality audits, um, but we don't have any data on their own employment practices or, you know, that the makeup of Parliament. We don't know whether there's a gender pay gap in Parliament. We don't know whether there's a a you know racial inequality in Parliament. These are, you know, and this is the legislative body of the United Kingdom and we don't have that kind of data. So that's, that's one issue that I just noticed through experience that I've, I then decided to, to sort of start speaking about. But it's not something that's, I guess it's something that I try to speak about when I have time. It's not something that I, I you know, do as like my, part of my day-to-day life. Yeah, that's awesome. And sort of speaking about people who also um, stand up and, and speak out about inequality, we saw that you're 
a fellow fan of AOC and also the Lord Mayor of Sheffield. What is it about those two that you particularly admire? Yeah, so I've become good friends with Majid, actually. He's a really he's a really nice guy. And um, I do see a lot of parallels between him and, I guess, AOC in America. I guess what's different about them is that they're normal people. You know, a lot of people in, in politics are kind of, you know, I guess I don't really like using the word career politician, but they're kind of very similar people. They either, you know, went to Oxbridge or they you know, worked for politicians or they worked in some sort of management role and then go into politics and have to be this sort of clean machine politician, right? And then you have, in America, suddenly you have this 27-year-old former bartender become a congresswoman and everything she says is in plain English and it's just um, very relatable, very easy to understand, very engaging. She knows how to use, uh, you know, these social media platforms well compared to other politicians. And I see the sort of same characteristics in Majid, right? So he's, again, someone who can talk about topics that are normally, you know, considered quite boring or or historical or whatever, right? Whether that's around minors or climate change or or anything else. And he's able to talk about them in an engaging way. So drive up a lot of attention on these issues. And, and in particular with Majid, he's, his role is Lord Mayor of Sheffield, right? How many Lord Mayors can people name? And yet suddenly here's a guy who has taken a ceremonial role and turned it into a huge platform, uh, you know, especially as a black Muslim refugee, um, to talk about issues on a national, you know, on a national uh, scale. So I, I see them as, as very exciting politicians, especially because they're both young. Uh, another example would be Mary Black and the SNP. These, these politicians who are coming through, I think, are the kind of people we need to encourage more to get into politics. And again, those politicians have immediately faced uh, abuse immediately faced um, you know pe- people not taking them seriously or, or criticizing them based on their identity and you know that's to be expected but they're, they're really breaking through and I think more of that would make a, a better political system. Yeah absolutely sidebar my wife's actually Scottish and she's obsessed with Mary Black I think that <laughs> I feel like every young person from Scotland's obsessed with her. She is brilliant I think I think as a as an orator as well, she's in a category of her own. So like, for example, if you look at Tony Blair, right? Tony Blair was a great orator above, you know, well, regardless of anything else. Um, and there are very few politicians who have a re- really good oratory skill. And I think Mary Black is one of those people who can talk with a lot of passion about something. And so I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah, I can, I'm not surprised that people in Scotland are, are, are keen on her. Yeah, definitely. And also, someone pointed out to me the other day that, for example, even if AOC did want to run for president, she wouldn't be able to because you can't until you're 35. And it just struck me that those bars on on age at the lower end just are quite discriminatory in many ways. I'd be interested to see what the reasoning behind that is. But, you know, I, I think what, how old is AOC now? She's probably like 27, 28. I think in eight years' time, she'll be ready to, to run for president, say... So. If a thirty-five-year-old president would still be quite young in comparison in comparison to previous ones, I think she'd be great. I think she'd be great. Maybe she needs those eight years to perfect herself. Awesome. You've obviously worked in and around Parliament. Uh, we've t- touched on that quite a bit during the interview. If you could get rid of one thing from Parliament and add one thing to Parliament, what would they be and why? I think I'd probably get rid of the chamber and. <laughs> 
uh, a, so the, the main debating chamber, I think I'd get rid of it and replace it with a sort of circular chamber like they have in the Scottish Parliament or like they have in Brussels. Because like, you know, at the moment you have a very purposefully divisive debating chamber. You, know, you have your opponents on one side and the government on another uh, rather than a sort of collaborative uh, setup. And I think that does actually influence the way that some politicians act. I mean, if you look at Prime Minister's questions, I've actually stopped watching it myself for maybe about a year now. I used to watch it quite a lot. It just It's just become a, I don't know, some sort of uh, circus, really. You know, people, these are grown men and women, you know, shouting at each other, braying like donkeys, essentially, thinking it's all a big game. And I think, you know, some of that is, in my opinion, the, the actual layout of the room. Um, so I, would, I think I would probably get rid of the debating chamber and replace it with something a bit more modern and collaborative. Awesome. Well, we're getting to the end of our interview with you now. And as our listeners will know, we always ask the people that we speak to to recommend a couple of things for us that we can get interested in. So could you start us off by recommending a podcast we should listen to other than this one, of course? Yeah, so one I've listened to quite a lot of is Krishnan Guru Murthy's Ways to Change the World. So he's the Channel 4 news presenter and he's interviews you know, a lot of interesting people who are doing stuff to who are doing things differently. One of my favourite interviews is with David Lammy. So that, that's one thing I would I would recommend listening to for you know, different ideas on how to do things. Brilliant, thank you. And how about a Twitter account? So I don't know if you've heard of Cold War Steve. So this is, I think his his handle is, I think his Twitter name is uh, McFadden's Cold War. So this is a guy who basically photoshops very bleak images of Britain. Um, if you haven't seen it, I would, I would highly recommend looking at his images. They're, they're very artistic. And I think he's actually released a book of them recently. You know, often all of them include um, Phil Mitchell from EastEnders for some reason. But many of them feature people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And I guess seeing some of his tweets throughout the day is quite amusing. So I'd follow him. That's brilliant. I actually just looked it up whilst you were speaking just then. And I've been trying to not laugh too loudly. Um, And how about a book? So my friend wrote a book recently called Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. And it's written by, so his name is Carl Miller. His book came out a couple of months ago and it's about the changing nature of power in the 21st century and in particular how technology has driven that change so if you think about you know, some of the things we've been talking about today if you think about how power is traditionally you have people who work their way up uh, in a business or in politics until they until they reach the top and they're either managing their business or managing the country or managing the political party and that's kind of how we understand power through money and and i guess politics and Technology has suddenly changed this because now that power could be in the hands of a 14-year-old boy in the UK hacking into the, the US intelligence services, for example, or it could be that power is, or, or that money suddenly comes from people selling illicit drugs on the dark net. Suddenly things become a lot easier to do and the nature of power changes. So the institutions who maybe policed crime in the past now struggle to police crime on the internet. So it's really changed uh, his book looks at a lot of different examples of this, and it's really interesting uh, narrative on how how much the states and society is really struggling with these issues, um, and what it could mean for for the future. So I'd highly recommend that uh, Death of the Gods is called. 
That sounds brilliant. Definitely lots of themes around the shifting nature of power and and how people can have more or less agency, depending on um, how things like technology shapes that. And like you mentioned, the dark web. So definitely we'll look that one up. And finally, a charity or a social enterprise that we should support. So a charity I'm quite involved in is called Uprising. Uprising is a charity that trains young people in setting up their own social enterprises, normally from uh, traditionally underrepresented backgrounds. And they, how it works, basically young people get involved, they, you know, they apply to be part of the programme and they get trained in sort of things like public speaking, media training, finance, um, campaign strategy, and they're supported in, in starting their own social action campaigns. And they run programmes in London, Birmingham, Manchester and elsewhere. And they're a good charity. I think they're on Twitter at Uprising UK, perhaps, if you want to give them a follow. Perfect. Thank you. Well, Arik, thank you so much for chatting with us. It was absolutely brilliant to get your thoughts on on all of these things, that everything from the future of democracy, the role of tech in opening up the voting system and, and hearing about some of the people that inspire you was a particular highlight. So thank you very much and best of luck in your new role. Thank you. <laughs> So, Kylie, what did you think about that? What an interesting interview uh, to the style of one that we haven't really had before, talking lots about democracy and voting. It was such an interesting theme to pull out, and it really reminded me a lot of lots of the other conversations we've had with people over recent months. And I'll share a bit more about what I, I think of those. But yeah, I found Arik to be really super informed and engaging and I just loved his optimism around things. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. That optimism really stood out to me. I think it gave me a real hope about doing elections online and having some kind of process for that. After the 2016 US elections, especially um, so many people were so scarred by the idea that the machines might have been hacked and just the whole process in general that I think the idea about having some kind of online process was taken off the table just mentally for a lot of a lot of people. So it was really nice to hear that Arik's been thinking about and reminding us why it's so important to keep going with this idea and how transformational it could be for the entire system. Absolutely. I loved his comparison when he talked about the Arab Spring. And that's one of the parts which reminded me of a previous conversation that we'd had with Aya. And it was in that vein of hope and optimism, but particularly related to young people and how we've seen a real increase in voter apathy in recent years. And a lot of what Arik was talking about was really bringing it back to why that's so important for the younger generation. And even the fact that he made the point around the next general election being one where people who were born in the 21st century can vote was terrifying. I didn't, I hadn't put those pieces together to realize that myself, but also it really speaks to that opportunity that we have um, to change the way that we do voting. What did you think about his comments around voting by postal vote and things like being able to vote in secret and independently? Yeah, I thought what was interesting about that was the fact that 
we still have to send letters back and forth to in order to engage with democracy. And he pointed that out as fundamentally weird to a lot of the younger generation that you just cited. The idea that you would ever send a letter is kind of like going to the dentist and seeing a pair of pliers on the table. Like it's just so odd and also kind of terrifying in terms of the process. What I liked about the thing about voting in secret was this idea that by having more tools available to people who potentially can't engage in the process at the moment that need more support with accessibility, we'd be able to open that up to everyone and allow everyone to use that. And that being a benefit, net benefit to everyone involved. And I know that that's something that you feel really passionately about. So I was going to ask you about what, what you thought about that. Yeah, definitely. On the accessibility point, what's what it ties into really nicely is what Eric was saying in terms of opening up to people who have ex- accessibility needs. It also, by design, if you start with the edge cases, then you do make the overall service better for everyone. And there are lots of consequences that we might not think about now. But one example I was mulling over after our chat with Arik was if you are in a living situation or a family situation in which you you might feel very influenced or pressured to vote a particular way, or if you often travel to the voting station with um, with someone who's quite influential in your life, and perhaps you don't want to vote the way that they would expect you to having that ability to do that um, secret voting is is so important and can really represent quite a cultural shift in the way that we do things so instead of that image of the family walking down to the polling station together and casting their vote you know all for the same political party and then walking out how might that change if we were able to vote from work or vote on the bus or you know vote in a different social situation and the other examples he gave were brilliant as well. So the fact that only 1% of the blind community are able to read Braille, um, but that we still provide that in um, polling stations and not some of the other really easy accessibility benefits was was so insightful. And that we put polling stations on the ground floor, but we don't think about accessibility in other ways was fascinating. And what did you think about his his early career and how he'd gone through that sort of Westminster bubble that you and I went through, but managed to break out? Yeah, I felt so low-key jealous of that, actually. <laughs> I'm always really impressed by people who go into the Westminster Whitehall bubble and then decide to do something that is different, even though what he was doing is was quite adjacent. I liked how he talked about that it gave him a firm foundation about how the sausage is made, like how policy actually gets created. And he's been able to use that in order to try and influence parliament and policy in ways that he thinks that could be useful. What did you think? Yeah, for sure. I also recognize that element of feeling really jealous that you can break out of that bubble, which is kind of something that I've done as well, although I've kept fairly close to it. And what's what's great that he highlighted as well is it feeling like you suddenly have more autonomy and ability to have opinions and perhaps criticize government and public services where you don't think they're being as effective as they could be. So that was great. And to be honest, the the thing that was really impressive was his work with Webroots and the fact that he founded that at the age of 21 um, alongside everything else that he was doing and, and is now 
in you know an equally impressive role at the future advocacy think tank which are just so inspirational and he really spoke to the people that inspire him well what did you think about those examples he gave yeah, I think we need to introduce a new drinking game for AOC. So anytime anyone mentions AOC, some, we have to drink. She she can be adjacent to Martha Lane Fox on the podcast. But I loved how he talked about the fact that there's this new generation of politicians coming through that speak to people in ways that don't seem alien to them and are able to engage with people in, in places that they actually are, like social media. And I really loved how he talked about Mary Black and the way in which, you know, she's an orator up there with Tony Blair, but potentially doesn't get the creds. Yeah, it's good to be reminded that this new generation is on the way up. Absolutely. Lots of shout outs to the Scottish political system from him. So that I really appreciated that. He also talked about Scottish Parliament being designed physically in a way that's much more collaborative. So thank you, Arik, for, for that shout out. And one final thing I was just going to mention that we didn't actually catch on the recording was that after our conversation, Arik and I realized that we have someone in common. So shout out to Afsal, who's in my team at Citizens Advice and is Arik's brother-in-law. Yeah, classic one team gov moment there where you find out that you're connected in some way. I love it. Absolutely. Very small one team gov world. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.